0: Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer.
1: Hey, evil canoodle. Oh,
0: nice. Canoodle starts with a K, apparently. <laughs> I
1: guess. <laughs> I'm Mariah Rose.
0: Hey, nice to see you.
1: For reals. We haven't seen each other in a few days.
0: That's true. Been on the road. But for those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome. We are an 80s-based podcast. And for those of you returning... Hey!
1: Hi! Long time no see. Good to see you again. <laughs>
0: Hope you guys enjoyed Alien Warrior. <laughs> <laughs> I know, buddy. Sure was happy that you watched it. Oh, buddy. Well, this week we're not doing Alien Warrior Part Two because no. I'm still working on that screenplay. <laughs> if you want to produce it?
1: Uh, I hit, will produce.
0: Hit me it. up. Uh, I'm looking for investors, but <laughs> we are moving into other '80s territory and. You know, this one kind of came out of a natural kind of organic progression of topics where we have had a shortlist for... Since we started the podcast and one of the things on that short list was a history of Oingo Boingo Yeah, and we just ran out of time. It's just they're too precious to us and We didn't want to rush through yeah. it
1: Yeah, and most of you know we've been going through kind of a crazy season of life and we're at the tail end of it now But we wanted to be able to give it our full attention
0: Yeah, and so recognizing that we couldn't do that It made us think of weird science that they did the theme song for and we we're like, well Maybe we could actually just do Weird Science or something. That would Mm -hmm. be fun. Then we watched Weird Science. and Well, I haven't watched that in a little while. It's not quite the film I remember. (laughs) I still enjoyed it. But then I thought about how that would be a little kind of boring to just talk about a movie. That's not really what what I was interested in. And it occurred to us that we have completely overlooked a titan of the 80s. And that would be the one and only John Hughes. So... This this episode, we are looking at the life and times, the mysterious nature of one of the most prolific and successful writers of the 80s, who I think, whose films kind of come and go with pop culture as far as being mm-hmm. very popular, then it's in vogue to not like his films, and it's in vogue to love his films, and I think it's kind of, he just, he just threads himself throughout the 80s pop culture but he really is an absolute like icon of mm-hmm. quintessential 80s movies love him or hate him he's a really fascinating character and I actually have had a newfound respect for him as we've been researching just because of how dedicated and prolific he was I think I kind of maybe overlooked that I think about the films he directed versus the films that he wrote and yeah. Uh, his output was pretty incredible, and for the most part, the quality that he was putting out was pretty high. Uh, You know, it's one thing to just write a bunch of films. It's another thing to write a bunch of films that were actually pretty good.
1: That resonate with people. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to the, like, lasting legacy or the way that his film is looked at now and, you know, scrutinize it with our 21st century eyes, but... um for what it was at the time, so powerful, so formative for so many generations of people. Decades of people oh, just well, yeah. grew up on Not Hughes. only
0: just viewers and fans, but also filmmakers. Yes. Just scores of filmmakers that came out afterwards trying to capture that lightning in a bottle again and just not really doing it. But John Hughes is kind of an interesting character for me because I didn't have a strong opinion about him growing yeah. up. Um, some of his films really stuck out to me some of them were like not for me and then what's interesting is as you age you kind of find yourself in different characters of those films and yeah. I do like that about his movies that there's it's a little something for everyone you know with his teen films everybody talks about how it's the teen experience but I would argue that uh, when you're no longer a teen it's not really the teen experience anymore and I don't know We'll we'll get into that as time goes on but what were what were your impressions of John Hughes' films uh, as they were coming out and as you were aware of them in the 80s and 90s?
1: Well, I would say when I first saw them, I mean they were they came out a generation before me, but when I saw them first, I think I was like junior high age. So they were almost aspirational, like this is what it's going to be like when I'm a teenager. And then like you said, I followed it through my life, you know, then I was a teenager and I related to it where I looked back as an adult and was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that feeling." And it almost rekindled that little spark of teenness that lives in our hearts. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you also mentioned that we were we haven't given a lot of thought to Hughes, and that's absolutely true. When people say, "Oh yeah, it's a John Hughes film," it's sort of like just a word that you say at the front that bookends these groups of films together, not an actual human being, because there isn't a lot known about John Hughes as a person. He doesn't have a bigger than life personality. You know, he doesn't have wild hair or a foot fetish or whatever. So you don't, <laughs> you don't get to know who he is. It's
0: true. And he's very private mm-hmm. and intentionally so. And yeah, and it's interesting because when you say John Hughes also... A lot of people just go to one or two films, like The Breakfast Club or something, mm-hmm. but they clump them all into, oh, if it's a John Hughes film, it must be like The Breakfast Club, and that's not true. No. I mean, there are a lot of reoccurring themes in his films that mm-hmm. we'll talk about that are just show up time and time again, but he does branch out and try different things and, and gets creative. And sure. I think it's pretty interesting. You know, for the longest time when I would think of John Hughes, <laughs> this is funny, uh, but... I always thought of that scene in Dogma when Jay and Silent Mm -hmm. Bob are talking about John Hughes films, which is funny. And we'll get to that later, too. There's a there's a reason why that scene is in there. But I always think about that, how funny it is of this, you know, idealized suburban, upper class suburban neighborhood where... Where these people exist. Shermer,
1: uh, Illinois.
0: Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's not quite, you know, Castle Rock for Stephen King, but it's a similar idea. Well, full disclosure to our listeners, if you're a die-hard John Hughes fan, uh, sorry, but we're not going to walk through everything he's ever done because that's just not of interest to us. We're not even going to walk through every film he's directed. We're just going to kind of touch him on him. But I think we're just going to stop on ones that stood out to us. Yeah. And, you know, both ones that he directed, which weren't a lot, I think there were only eight, and then all the films he wrote. So this is more kind of a general overview. Of you'll just, get, you'll you know, get to know
1: him. Yeah. Just
0: And just the, the breadth of his output versus mm-hmm. hyper-analyzing every single one, which just sounds incredibly boring.
1: Yeah, it really does. But this will give you a little insight into who he was and kind of maybe give you a a better idea of what he was doing and why he was doing it. So let's jump in. Yeah, sure. Hughes was born in Lansing, Michigan in 1950. I just assumed he was from Illinois. I don't know Yeah, everybody
0: thought he's a Chicago guy, but but he wasn't originally.
1: No, his mother did volunteer charity work and his father worked in sales. Mm -hmm. So middle class, solid. He had three sisters and lived in Michigan until he was 12. Now, as a person who has moved a lot in, in life, I can tell you moving when you are 12 is a, a rough thing. <laughs> so uh, <laughs>
0: I didn't have that experience. I was in the same spot the whole time. So yeah, I couldn't wait to leave.
1: Yeah, well, I, I moved a lot, a lot. And when I was that age, I can tell you that you would become hyper aware because when you're in that pubescent age, you're already hyper aware of like your elbows, the hair on your body that shouldn't be there, but now it is everything, your pimples, but now you're in a new setting. So you also have to, because you're the center of your own world at that age, just take in all of this new information and how it pertains to your <laughs> yeah. your little ego that is just budding. So he moved at that age. And growing up, uh, he said that he lived in an area that he had few boys of his age, like up until he was 12. So he was pretty isolated. I think, obviously, he was quite introverted. And he his family did move around a lot, but it made it hard for him to establish like lasting friendships, something that of course resonates with me because I was moving every few years through my early childhood. And I really cl- clicked on that and saw, ah, because one of the things that happens when you move a lot is b- you become an observer. And you watch people like obsessively to go, Okay, this is this is my way in. This is how I connect. This is how I fast track that friendship, because I know I've only got limited time or everybody else already has a head start. And I think that is something that translates into his later career.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, that's an interesting observation. I wouldn't I'm not coming at it from that angle because I just grew up in the same town. So I already knew everybody. From when we were young, and then we all came up together. So I didn't have to try and work my way into the clique. Because even when people all of a sudden were the cool kids, I'm like, you weren't the cool kid. You were just that dude on the playground when you were younger. You know, you're not fooling me. So I didn't really buy it. But a lot of the kids that were new to our school would immediately buy the BS that they were selling. You know, like, oh, here's this... Or, you know, somebody would fill out and look really handsome or really beautiful. And all of a sudden, they've mm-hmm. now they're the the cool kids in high school. But I'm like, man, I remember what you look like on the playground. And, you know, that's just the way it is. And I think a lot of that translates to his films where uh, not everybody gets a fair shake, but it kind no. of would be ideal if they did.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, when he was in junior high, his parents did move him to Chicago, or really like the suburbs. And unfortunately, this left him even more isolated because he moved to a really big city and he was an introvert. I mean, obviously, he's in the suburbs, but still, it was a big population and he was small fish in a big pond. Um, But he also moved on to a big high school and didn't stand out, didn't know anybody. But I think that he kind of found his area. He got really into music and He says that, or he said that the Beatles and Bob Dylan kind of changed his life. Yeah,
0: it's around the right time. It's the right
1: time, and it's the right age, too. Because when you discover music, like, once you cross that threshold, there's that sweet spot in your age when suddenly music just really hits you and you go, ah, I feel it. I'm there. I'm in it. And I think,
0: yeah, that came really early for me. I mean, by the time I was six or seven, I was
1: just listening
0: to music nonstop all day, every day. I coded my room with posters of bands I like. And, you know, it was either heavy metal bands from the 80s at the time or Mm -hmm. or, you know Prince was another one I liked but even pop culture like I had that cassette single in my Walkman of uh, the Bartman from the Simpsons (laughs) and I felt so cool getting on the school bus in elementary and like you know do the Bartman I just it was it was just part of my life was this soundtrack and I rode the bus from uh, you know a, a community that was like 10 miles outside of town every single day. So I had this commute and I would just put on my headphones and stare out the window to this soundtrack of my life. And Mm -hmm. so I think that music resonated with me really early on. And I felt very isolated too. And we'll talk about that throughout his films is music plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. And he had more of a heavy hand in that than I thought he did originally. I didn't understand that, that he... Not quite to the degree of somebody like Wes Anderson or something oh, who's no. like hyper, you know, analyzing every scene with music. But he really was pretty particular about what he wanted to to create the mood. And mm-hmm. I I don't think that maybe he gets enough credit uh, over the years. Maybe he does. Maybe I'm totally wrong. But I don't. I often don't hear John Hughes and song selections put in the same
1: no. sentence
0: as much as writing.
1: Although. When you think of his films, those soundtracks, you go, oh, here we come. You know, like, oh, we're sure. science. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Don't
0: you forget about them. Yeah. yeah. And they're huge.
1: Powerful. And, you know, we watched that um, documentary and they talk about how he would go with the stars of his films to record stores and load up.
0: Yeah. And there was even an interesting story about that theme song from The Breakfast Club. Uh, oh, yeah. And how that came to be. I mean, he just... He really did push a lot of this music to create this world uh, for himself, where most of the films are really have a sense of of himself in them, yeah, or an idealized
1: self. Really, another thing I read that there's this great quote from him about his heroes who were Bob Dylan, the Beatles and the artist Picasso whom i have a lot of personal problems with however he admired them all for moving their genre forward mm-hmm. and if you think about his career this is exactly what he accomplished and what he tr- like strove for his whole career was not just doing something well and sticking with it but instead saying i'm going to keep trying and moving go forward Never just spin my wheels in the same place all the time. Because while he has these precious teen movies, he did do other things and was always thinking and trying and writing again and again just to to see where he could go with it. And I think that's really something he picked up from his heroes. Okay, so when his family moved him to Chicago, he went to junior high and high school. But uh, he got into film and he met a cheerleader named Nancy. Oh, okay. Yeah, so even though he's portrayed as this, like, introverted weirdo or whatever, um, he hooked up with a cheerleader and married her. Oh, I
0: didn't know he married a cheerleader. Yeah, That's Nancy really Ludwig,
1: <laughs> his wife, like, his whole life, they got married, and they had kids, and she was his wife. Well,
0: after school, he... You know, he was definitely interested in film and writing and stuff like that. And he ended up moving across the country, which must have been pretty shocking to him because he did love Chicago. And that definitely became the center of his universe for the Mm -hmm. rest of his life. But briefly, he tried something where he moved out west and attended the University of Arizona, except it did not stick at all.
1: It's Arizona. It's a million degrees.
0: He just didn't like it. And he dropped out. But... This is a part of his career that a lot of people who, unless they have read up on him, Mm -hmm. don't really know. And it's kind of quirky and strange is that once he dropped out of school, he actually started making money on the side selling jokes to comedians. How do you do that? I don't know. I was wondering that, too. But like real comedians like Rodney Dangerfield and stuff like that. I mean, it was I mean, he was actually doing this. That's so bizarre to me. I didn't even know that was a thing.
1: Yeah, I'm super curious about how you just jump into that, because I can write a joke. It's going to be a bad pun, but I'll do it.
0: Yeah. I'll sell it to you. (laughs) But he kind of, as most of us do early in our careers, we just kind of fumble from one thing to the next. You know, whatever stones appear in front of us, we hop to it. And he went from joke selling to like this low level position at a marketing campaign. And... It was really bizarre, but he worked as this copywriter in 1970, and then eventually ended up transferring to a much larger company in 74. Mm-hmm. And it's during this time, and I heard, I was listening to a few podcasts about his life. I don't think he even just worked for the campaign. I think he was in charge of the entire campaign oh. for Virginia Slim's The cigarettes. Classy. so weird. Like, how did this guy get to that point?
1: It's like a... Just stumbling up the stairs, kind of. Yeah,
0: but he's doing very well for himself at this, Mm -hmm. you know, marketing firm. And he ended up going to New York City a lot to visit these offices and stuff. And it was there that really uh, things changed for him in a major way that would have a profound impact. Is that he got to know the staff of National Lampoon magazine that was over there. And he eventually became a contributor to the magazine.
1: I wonder went on there, like, how do you just go, hey, working on a Virginia Slims campaign, and P.S., can I work for you, National Lampoons?
0: I wonder if he just submitted something and said, here's a story, read mm-hmm. it over. And they were like, whoa, this is actually really great. But he got involved right away. And then he ended up writing his first actual screenplay was National Lampoon's class reunion. So that's how he got his start. Unfortunately, uh, it was not well received. No. But that didn't stop him. And he ended up, you know, continuing to write. You know, f- interesting, one of the stories that he wrote for the magazine when he was contributing. Ended up becoming a full film that he wrote, which was National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Wild. That's so crazy, which is, you know, this monumental film.
1: Yeah, everybody's seen that film.
0: Yeah, but it all stems from this whole time in his life. But even though Class Reunion didn't work, he just kept pushing forward, and he ended up doing a script for the film Mr. Mom, which...
1: Michael Keaton. Have you seen Mr. Mom? Heck yeah. It's been a very long time. Me
0: too. But I had it. Uh, it was one of the tapes that my dad had brought home that were dubbed from his co-worker. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I've told this tapes. story a lot. Yeah. One of the dad tapes. But I used to watch Mr. Mom and I thought Michael Keaton was so funny. I have not seen it since I was a kid and I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't hold up well. Uh,
1: I think that's true of almost everything. Yeah.
0: But I'm kind of at this point just expecting it. But he did Mr. Mom and that was a huge success. So... All of a sudden, uh, his name was getting thrown around, and he ended up getting a three movie deal from Universal. And this is now the beginning of the John Hughes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually have this week's fun fact. Ah, bring it. All right. So he had this three movie deal and the first movie in this deal was actually supposed to be The Breakfast Club. Oh, really? Yes. However, he was looking through headshots and stumbled upon a face. A a face that was both intriguing and strange and beautiful. The face of a, a very young girl, Miss Molly Ringwald.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: And he said, well, Hold up, there's the face. And he wrote 16 candles.
0: Really? For like her. after seeing her
1: headshot? Yes, he wrote it for her. I think they met, like did a screen test or something, but he wrote that and they decided to film it first. And actually, Universal liked it a great deal because it was more, it had more of a Porky's vibe, which was kind of what was selling at the time. Because it was like slapstick. And we're talking about the original screenplay here.
0: Okay. It was
1: more slapstick, more sexual, things like that. And they were like, we like that. It'll sell. It's more funny. Whereas Breakfast Club, it it looks drama. Well, and it actually reads quite like a play. Mm -hmm. Like if you were in a theater. Oh,
0: for sure. That's it really is just a play.
1: Yeah. So they were like, let's do 16 Candles first. So they put that before Breakfast Club and his three movie deal.
0: Interesting that you would say it was like Porky's because I always think of it as being the opposite of Porky's. And that's what made it stand out was it was like this breath of fresh air for uh, teenagers being represented in cinema.
1: Sure. And his is definitely toned down and goes against the like super sexual. But if you rewatch it, it's I have not watched it sexual. in a
0: really long time. But I remember the, you know, when I did see it, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. Her character's a little complicated because I mean, sure that sucks that they forgot your birthday, but at the same time, like your sister's getting married, and
1: no way. But when you're <laughs> it's kind when of you're sixteen, Oh my gosh. Yeah, no.
0: So that's it. That's you're hitting it right there on the head. Is that that was something that was not being captured mm-hmm. often in cinema was the a true teenager's perspective, which is very self indulgent, yes. self centered but in all the right ways, which is, hey, it's my birthday and you guys forgot. And there's something extremely relatable and that really did resonate in so many people Because it was just a different perspective.
1: Absolutely. And it's so relatable because we're all the main character in our own story and never more so than when we are teenagers. You know, that age, that coming of age where it's so tender. We're just like raw nerves. And he really does capture that.
0: Well, and how old was Molly? Like 14 or 15? She was ninth grade. Yeah, because that's one of the things about John Hughes, which will, there's a, there's, it's problematic in some films but great Mm -hmm. in others, is that he would cast the actual ages for the most part. And that made a pretty huge difference.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's probably a huge part of why it is so successful, because you can actually see yourself as a teenager. And I'll get to, because I read a great article, when we kind of get to the end of this, Molly Ringwald has a lot to say about this legacy and how it holds up. Oh,
0: interesting. So you had mentioned you know filmmakers and stuff at the beginning being inspired by him and all these people who really were drawn to it not only fans but other future filmmakers one of the big ones that we mentioned already with dogma was kevin smith and in that documentary he mentioned molly ringwald and he said what stood out was that she wasn't pretty she's just looks like a teenage girl that's like you maybe have a shot with yeah
1: she's cute but she looks like an average human
0: and i strongly agree with that Mm -hmm. as a young boy watching these films that's what i thought too was like i kind of like maybe i could hook up with that girl in the right circumstances whereas when you watch something like weird science and kelly lebrock comes out like
1: even the girlfriends yeah
0: that's just so far out of reach But there was something about Molly that was like, okay, she's closer to my age and she's not so incredibly like Mm -hmm. insane looking that I maybe have a chance. And I think that that maybe was not as apparent of being a strength of his films until later when people started to go back and really review them was like, this is kind of brilliant to actually cast because we cover only 80s movies when we do movie episodes and Nine times out of 10, the teenagers, quote unquote, are all like late 20s usually. And it's very obvious. And it's usually something that's just funny to talk about. But when you see a teen movie with actual teens, uh, it is instantly more realistic or more relatable.
1: Although we do have to talk a moment here about Weird Science because we know that the two leads were teenage boys. But Kelly LeBrock was a full grown adult Kissing them.
0: Oh, she was like in her 20s and he
1: was 15? Something like that. And then the two girlfriends were also in their 20s. Yeah. So that's that's problematic. I'm not quite sure how that was legal at the time. We'll just skip by it. But
0: I never thought about it until the last time we watched it. I've always just... Because I loved Weird Science growing up. But this last time watching it, and maybe it's just because we have two daughters, yeah. <laughs> that I was like... um what is the age difference here? Yeah, And then when I Googled it and found out like, oh, he actually is like 15 and she's 23 or something like that. Yeah. And they are full going at it. I, I was just like, okay, well different times mm-hmm. for sure. Different times. But going back to the Molly Ringwald thing, I think that that, that is a, a really strong starting point for his career is casting somebody that's relatable, telling a true experience But it also sets the early tone of the type of person he's going to tell the story of. Yeah. Which is very much upper middle class, white suburban kid.
1: But like the outcasts. Because after the success of Sixteen Candles, he came out with Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Some Kind of Wonderful. Yes, these are all like affluent teens, but they're also the, the like square peg kind of kids
0: yeah so breakfast club comes out and that is a just a massive hit what's your thoughts on breakfast club
1: it's got a lot of areas that are hard to watch and actually troubled me even as a teenager like judd nelson nelson is his character's a jerk just horrible but he gets the girl in the end that really troubled me like Yeah, he had a hard life. Everybody does. Maybe his had been a little harder earlier, but he was gross and awful and still gets the girl in the end. And I was just like, oh, tell a better story. Even as a teenager, I saw that and had trouble with it.
0: Yeah, there are some problematic areas to it. I think that overall, there's some honesty to it. Mm -hmm. But it also is telling, you know, just this brief moment in time. And, you know, we don't really know what happens. The following week.
1: I think it also speaks to that... Especially in the '80s, '90s, even early 2000s, we had more clicks, and I think that's changing in culture as it's becoming more homogenized in modern times.
0: Yeah, I don't think that there are as many cliques as there used to be.
1: Yeah, it's really weird because you know, in in our days and days prior, there were the goths, the preps, the punks. The- oh, it
0: was a like clear distinction between those clicks too. Even within the like outcasts, like. All the fringe people that we were a part of, the skaters didn't hang out with the punks and the punks didn't hang out with the metalheads. Even though the preps all saw us as one group, rarely did we interact. I mean, we would
1: like intermingle, but it wasn't like a full like mix. It would be at
0: a party maybe, but not, you know, out to lunch. You know, we wouldn't go sit in the same areas at lunch and stuff
1: like that. No, that's very true. And I think that he caught those types or some of those types really well, like perfectly encapsulated them in most of his films he was able to eagle eye it and go ah that's that type and you can see especially for for those of us in a less homogenized culture we can see ourselves and go oh i'm that one i'm the ali sheedy or you know whatever you see yourself and you know yeah but the
0: problematic part of his storytelling is that if you're the ali sheedy the, you you need a makeover to be able to be accepted with your friends yep. you know you can't just be yourself i i do think that there are some some areas that maybe weren't weren't sending the best message no. but they were also being more realistic because that is what teens f-
1: expect yes. that's
0: that's what they strive for is like well if i'm not going to be accepted as i am then Maybe I I will be if I'm more like this person.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And it does bring up a conversation that could be had because there's this whole side, like, what is the responsibility of the filmmaker to be honest, to teach a lesson? Do we want everything to be like a full house lesson where you do the wrong thing and find your right way? Of course not. So... It it does ask, like, what what is the responsibility of the filmmaker to society? And, you know, what is their responsibility to the future? And obviously they can't tell the future. So something to consider, but I don't know.
0: Well, I think that Breakfast Club was monumental. Mm-hmm. I do think that after the Breakfast Club, you have an interesting couple of films that come out. All very, very popular as well. But very different. Like, I think Weird Science is the one that stands out as being a little out of place with the rest of his films. Because it's pretty quirky. And it's just a different kind of genre that he's experimenting he's trying with. trying
1: something, yeah.
0: It's very 80s. But there are elements to that film that are always going to be funny to me. There are elements that maybe don't age as well. But like we said, with all 80s movies, rarely do they age well. That's just something you have to kind of roll with. You can't be yeah. uptight about it. You have to kind of think of it as the grand scheme. Do you still enjoy this? Yeah. But I think that the one we should get to, in my opinion, is is his greatest film, and I think you know the one that just really had an impact on me would be Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I do think that this is a really incredible film. I think it captures a lot. Mm-hmm. I think the characters are clearly defined and yeah. both likable and very unlikable, depending on your own personality (laughs) yeah (laughs) um you know for those who have seen it which i'm sure most people matthew broderick's character ferris bueller is just this just this punk he's just such a jerk he's so entitled and but he's so fun but he's fun and he's trying to make it fun for his friend cam you know who is this depressed who's the one i identified with is like just depressed and lonely and isolated and you know, for him, he has real problems. He comes from this troubled background. His mm-hmm. family's a mess. But they're all affluent, you know, rich kids, suburban white rich kids that are, uh, you know, bored. So, yeah. again, we it's a very limited audience that he's appealing to. However, some of the themes can can still kind of cross over into different areas. I think that this film for me stood out because... It was just fun. You know, Ferris was that character that was just pushing and pushing to do whatever, whenever. Life of the party. And I ditched constantly as a teenager. Yes, so you did. for me, the idea was like, yeah, of course we're going to go do something fun. If we're going to ditch, we're not just going to go sit across the street. We're going to go have some wild adventure. And often we would, you know, like drive out of town and go do stuff. And so it was relatable. I do have a story. Uh, uh, from my childhood, that relates directly to Ferris Bueller, okay. which I'm sure every kid my age did. Which was the scene where he creates the fake him in the bed, yeah. you know, with all the contraptions to fool his parents that he's sleeping. Uh huh. My friends and I all tried a version of that. Of course, you know, whether it just be the soccer ball with a wig on, you know, or under the bed, or trying to make it more established. I remember my friend and I going so far as to putting like a broomstick with a string and a pulley system to the door handle so that when you moved the door handle the broomstick would go up and make it look like we were moving Whoa. Like we watched the movie and then really did try and recreate some of these things. So Ferris Bueller, I have not watched it in quite a few years, and again, I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't age maybe as well as I remember, but that film to me always just stood out as being very iconic, very of the times, and just it had a nice arc to it. You know, it yeah, it, it had characters with depth to them. Well, Ferris didn't have a lot of depth, but his support to Cam did, and I think that that's who's the real star of of Ferris Bueller is is his friend. It's yeah. really his story that we're we're watching. And of course, I had a you know massive crush on Ferris's girlfriend. You know, as a t- as a little boy, I thought she was so pretty. And the the film's just wild and crazy and and out there. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts were. If it if it was more like a boy film than no. a girl film or not, I don't know. I've never really no, thought about. No, I think
1: it. it transcends gender. And I always was like, I'm gonna be Ferris. Oh, so you related
0: to Ferris? That's funny.
1: I'm an extrovert, so that's true. Absolutely, I just wanted to like do what Ferris did for fun. I just, he chased the fun and I loved, I loved that. I loved that about him. But I also, I think maybe everybody wants to be the Ferris, but is maybe the Cam. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's I think true. there's a little bit
0: of everything. And I think, as was the case with The Breakfast Club, is that there's a little bit of John Hughes in every character he writes. Yes. And I think that's very clear and apparent that he's kind of putting a little piece of his own personality in each character. Also, all of these, of course, because they're John Hughes films, take place in Chicago. So Mm -hmm. you've got that as a backdrop, too. So he really does create his own little world. It's not to the degree, you know, we mentioned Wes Anderson, but I'd say even more so Tim Burton or somebody who, when you watch their film or David Lynch, you're in their world. I do think if it's not at the forefront, you don't realize how much of a John Hughes world you've walked into. But once you step back and you consider what you just watched and the environment in which it all happened, it's very much a controlled environment.
1: Especially with his early batch.
0: But after that early batch, you know, you talked earlier about John feeling like he didn't want to really be pigeonholed and stuck and he wanted to keep progressing, right? You know, the Beatles had to make the White Album or whatever. (laughs) He had to keep moving. So his next step, which still feels very much like a John Hughes film, but isn't is like the kids growing up. It's instead of the teenage experience, it's now more of the adult experience. Mm -hmm. And he did a whole line of films after that, which to me is incredibly interesting. When I've talked to people about John Hughes, it's kind of one or the other. Either they're fans of his teen movies, or they're fans of the later adult movies. Mm. It's not really uh, both often, because the later movies include these other mega hits, like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Uncle Buck. He wrote, as I said, Christmas Vacation. So you've got these ones that are more adult oriented mm-hmm. and using a different cast for sure. You got John Candy is his kind of go to guy who's.
1: Steve Martin.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and they stand out in these films.
1: But in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, it's a similar trope to what he did in Ferris Bueller's Day Off because we have Steve Martin plays this businessman who's like totally like intense and uptight and not ready to have fun we have john candy's character he's not together like ferris but he's like he forces the uptight person outside of their box and outside of their comfort zone
0: yeah i would agree with that too and and even with uncle buck the idea of being like this character is going to come in and kind of shake things up and i love
1: uncle buck
0: yes you're a very big uncle buck fan
1: i haven't seen it in a while so maybe it doesn't hold up but i love it so much so i hope it does
0: You know, and he's got some other ones during like at the tail end of the teen years that some kind of wonderful that often gets overlooked because of these monumental successes like Ferris Bueller's Mm -hmm. Day Off and Breakfast Club. But what's interesting about all this is even though he's like on top of his game and I mean, everything's just success is that he hits a little bit of a rut with Curly Sue in 1991, which ended up being his last film he ever directed. Right. There's some speculation from people who were around him who said he just kind of reacted to this studio environment of chewing things up and spitting it out to be the way they wanted. And he really very much wanted to control his own creative output.
1: He notoriously hated to revise.
0: Yes. So and he would often just write on the spot, like Mm -hmm. somebody would have a suggestion and he would go home and write 40 more pages and come back the next day with it. And that's not an overstatement. He no. really was that kind of writer, very prolific. And so with Curly Sue, he was he just bowed out of directing and I think it took everybody by by surprise.
1: Did you ever see Curly Sue?
0: I did see Curly Sue. I
1: did too. I liked it.
0: Yeah, I you know, I didn't have a problem with it at all.
1: I was a kid when it came out. It was great. But
0: what's interesting is that he, with him out of the game as a director, He's still writing a lot of oh. stuff. I mean, a ton of stuff. Yeah, but it's at this point where the John Hughes who is accessible to Hollywood and to his his co stars and you know his cast and crew becomes a little bit reserved and starts to isolate himself a little bit yeah. more. I think as a reaction to what's happening in Hollywood that as his name grows, the need for him to become more part of the system grows. And I think that he wasn't very happy with that. So he starts to become more of a recluse around this period.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people who talk about him, they're, they're like, he got out. It's, it's even worse now saying how, you know, everything is so on a schedule, so broken down into its data points that it kills creativity. So I could see where that would be. Uh, Absolutely terrible to somebody like him.
0: Yeah. And even even though he did continue on, he didn't continue on with the same openness that he had up until this point.
1: Yeah. And actually, he reached his greatest success, not uh, through directing, but through writing and producing with the film. Home Alone. This actually came out in 91, so it was pre-Curly Sue, but it was all right in the area. This was the top grossing film of 1990. Obviously, it's still going strong. We just introduced our children to it last year. Hughes also had a hand in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, starring (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Tim Curry. Oh, yes, the real star. And Home Alone 3 in 1997. He was also involved in Dennis the Menace, which I... I kind of enjoyed when I was a kid and the less uh, well received Baby's Day Out in 1994.
0: So, were you, like most kids our age, a massive Home Alone fan?
1: Heck yes. Yes, yes, yes. I lived in the creepiest house. So, my dad, the pastor, we lived in a parsonage for a while and our basement was terrifying. And I tried to booby trap it in case like a monster would come up.
0: That's funny. I, speaking of Home Alone, I have to shout out to my friend Tommy because it's his all-time favorite film.
1: Oh, Tommy. (laughs) He he loves Christmas movies and
0: he especially loves Home Alone. It's so so good. You know, Home Alone's an interesting film. I absolutely loved it too growing up. It's very rewatchable. I think just the cast is on point with this one. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until years later that... I found out about, you know, the speculation of the writing behind it. And I know people are going to roll their eyes right now if they already know the story. But we do have a, a part of our listener base is very educated in horror and deep cut, you know, obscure films. Okay. Home Alone, there's a lot of speculation because of the similarities to another film that Home Alone maybe was lifted from a previous film that came out the year before. what? And people have even traced how he would have seen this. But I'm going to just take a
1: a little sidestep.
0: And uh, people can just humor me for a second because I do think it's interesting. Whether or not I I believe it, I do think it's worth mentioning if we're going to talk about Home Alone.
1: Uh, Then I believe it. Okay. What is it? In
0: 1989, there was a French horror film that came out. Because it's French... Uh, there are a lot of different titles. Actually, this was the film that I recommended we do for a Christmas episode. And then like five other podcasts did it right away. Ugh. So luckily we didn't do it. But maybe next year. It is called 3615 Code Pierre Noel or Deadly Games, Dial Code Santa Claus, Game Over, or even Hide and Freak. <laughs> Ooh, but Hide and Freak. Basically, it's this French film about a kid during Christmas time who ends up being home alone and an invader comes in and he has to use like things around the house to fight off this invader. It's much darker and uh, much creepier, but...
1: Could have been the inspiration. There are
0: so many similarities and the timing was right there that it got... It was so obvious to so many people that even the director and writer himself threatened legal action on the grounds of plagiarism well and but when he also,
1: saw it, it was making qua billions of dollars sure
0: but when he saw it he said uh, they just remade my movie <laughs> like that's what happened yes. and so for people who have seen it it's a very different movie but if you were to just put it on paper and and submit both one pages you know to two summaries of each film they're They're very, very similar. Interesting. So I do think that's interesting because with John Hughes, he's so celebrated as being this very inventive and quirky writer. But everybody can be challenged at times. And this is one of those areas in his career where he was questioned. Uh, But
1: wait, Hughes, the ever mysterious man, wrote screenplays under the pseudonym Edmond Dantes after the character from The Count of Monte Cristo. So he was like pulling back and pulling back from... Like, putting buffers between him and his creative output.
0: Do you think that this was intentional, that he didn't want his name associated with the films, or he just didn't want to deal with Hollywood? I
1: think he didn't want to deal with Hollywood. Also, he held a grudge, so he might have been just making things harder for people. This is
0: a really weird period of his career, the later half.
1: Well, he wrote Made in Manhattan. Oh, man. Look, we might not love these, but they also made money. He wrote Drillbit Taylor. No, oh, yep. And Beethoven, which obviously it's a dog, so I love it.
0: He like the Beethoven franchise took the world by storm. <laughs> yeah, it is so weird that that's John. That's John Hughes.
1: It is weird
0: under a pseudonym.
1: It is weird.
0: It's very weird, but good for him. We can all agree. Okay. Man, he was bankrolling on all these.
1: Yeah. And then he was like, cool, 1994, goodbye. And he retired, returned to Chicago. But he didn't really retire because within a year, he and Ricardo Mestres formed Great Oaks Entertainment, and they produced Jack, 101 Dalmatians, Reach the Rock, and Flubber. And they only lasted three years.
0: Man, they, like, knocked it out of the park
1: for those three years. Yeah, they have, like, a deal with Disney, and that's what they did. But then after this, Hughes really removed himself from the public eye. Like, he was over it. And he mostly stopped giving interviews at this point. He did record an audio commentary for the 99 release of Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 2009. He was visiting New York uh, because his son had a new baby. And... He'd been staying in a hotel, went out for a morning walk, and had a heart attack and was later pronounced dead at the hospital. And he was only 59.
0: Oh, wow. Very young. Yeah, that's crazy. What a strange ending to his story, because he did continue to write some, you know, stuff, some National Lampoon stuff and Beethoven stuff like that. But he really did just remove himself Mm -hmm. from the public eye and... To the point of a lot of his cast and crew who had worked with him for years just stopped hearing from him entirely. There's a scene. Okay, so there's a documentary we referenced earlier called uh, Don't Forget About Me, I Mm -hmm. think is the title, where this group of filmmakers try and go out and... Trace the story of John Hughes, and ultimately the end result is to get an interview with the elusive John Hughes. Yeah,
1: they get loads of interview with cast and crew people who are inspired by him.
0: Yeah, the only head scratcher part of the whole documentary is that they choose to have a discussion about John Hughes in the middle of a cornfield. I'm not sure why that that was, but they're really interviewing everybody. And there's a couple moments that really stand out, and one of them is, you know, when they're saying, "Is there anything you want to say to John?" And I think it's Judd Nelson, he's really kind of emotional about it. And he says, I just miss talking to you. And it's interesting because it was in that moment when I realized he really did cut everybody out. Yeah. And he just closed off entirely. And then he's just dead. And that was that. Everybody was kind of waiting for him to come back and, you know, do another big major teen movie or something. And he just didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So the story of John Hughes is bizarre because he just kind of faded.
1: Well, actually, there had been a when Molly Ringwald was 20, they had written a screen or he had written a screenplay for another film for her. And she had some like rewrites she wanted to make and he was not into it and the film never got made. She says, you know, it could have been something else, too, but like not necessarily that. There was some beef between them, but it just fell apart. So Yeah,
0: and they tried, you know, people tried over the years to pull him out of, of his, you know, isolation. But at the MTV Movie Awards, they did this whole, you know, thing, the celebration of John Hughes, and basically everybody from his movie showed up. But him, he didn't come.
1: And that's interesting because we do read this narrative where he isolated himself. But really, maybe he isolated himself from the public eye. But who knows? Maybe he had a super rich and fulfilling life with loads of friends and connections. That's just not clear because he cut cut off the, the public side of his life.
0: Well, it does seem like he had a really good thing going because in the documentary they interview like the pizza guy who's like yeah he comes here every week and gets a pizza and stuff like I mean he's got his own life he just was over it he didn't and clearly if you have that much money if you've worked your way up that high you have the luxury of saying I don't have to deal with Hollywood yeah I have all the money I need Bye. and I don't think that people are used to people being that in control of their own career
1: yeah yeah, Like,
0: no, you've got to go play the game. And he just didn't have to.
1: Yeah, he didn't have the need that I think a lot of actors do to, like, feel the 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 warmth of the sun kind of thing. He was just like, oh, okay, bye.
0: Yeah, and I don't think he really desired the attention like no. a lot of other people did. Well, even though he left at a very early age, it was after that that his, his legacy really started to unfold in front of everybody's eyes. And, you know... Uh, It's like you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? The Cinderella song. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's, I think once people realize we got everything we were going to get from him, Mm -hmm. even though there's been a lot of talk about all these undeveloped scripts that he wrote. Of course. But I think when people realize this is all we got, that's when they started to go back and reevaluate what we did get. Yeah. And that maybe it was a bit more precious than we had given it credit for. So a lot of the critics started to kind of maybe ease up a little bit see him in a new light but then you had this generation of people who had watched his films now becoming adults and being able to be creative in their own right Mm -hmm. so other writers and other directors start incorporating elements of the john hughes style into their work to try and recapture some of that magic Mm -hmm. that he had done and it shows up in all kinds of pop cultural references like you know it showed up on community of course
1: (laughs) Yeah, but that season opened, like the series opened just a month or so after he died.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, One Tree Hill, you know, the spoof Not Another Teen movie. All these kinds of things have reference. I mean, he's just, it's not to the degree of Star Wars, but also if you know The Breakfast Club, you'll start to see it. Even, cracked me up that you did not know this, but (laughs) the cover of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 is just a... Of spoof on the Breakfast Club poster. Of course it
1: is. I just had never put it together until I saw it side by side and I was like, oh, Oh, The moment you said that,
0: I laughed so hard. I was like, you didn't? But uh, it's really funny. And then also the whole notion of the Brat Pack, right? We have to talk about that. Yeah. Who is the Brat Pack? It's like Molly Ringwald, uh, Ali Sheedy, Matthew Broderick, Judd Nelson, Anthony Michael Hall is Mm -hmm. the uh, big one, John Cryer, I don't know if you'd clump Macaulay Culkin or no. You know, he like, was just
1: kind of made by.
0: But the really the core group of these teens—they were actual teenagers mm-hmm. who were just having these massive hits under oh, their belt.
1: What's his name? Uh, the Iron Man guy, Robert Downey Jr. He was also in the Brat Pack.
0: Yeah, well, and even um, Charlie Sheen. You yeah. know, I mean, he was the great. The 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 boyfriend character in Ferris Bueller who's the <laughs> delinquent. So I mean just great. it's uh yeah, so the you know, there's the brat pack too, that whole legacy. And then as we mentioned, people like Kevin Smith and uh who's the guy who did Juno and stuff like that? Like, you know, these oh, yeah. all these guys are huge fans of John Hughes and they're all trying to kind of tell the story. Directors the,
1: of Napoleon Dynamite.
0: Yeah. Or even Judd Apatow, that idea that it's carrying on the legacy of trying to tell the weird teen Yep. story. Uh, clearly, it's a very different version, but yeah. it does kind of remain. And even in the at the Academy Awards in two thousand twelve, they did a huge tribute to John Hughes and stuff. So his legacy continues on.
1: Yeah, actually, it, I read an article from the New Yorker two thousand eighteen, written by Molly Ringwald. Oh, really? In response to the Me Too movement.
0: And what did she have to say?
1: It was really... It's a great article. I highly recommend you read it because she just owns it all. She said, you know, she walked walked back through some of these old films. She sees the things like a girlfriend, Jake Ryan trading his girlfriend for a pair of underwear. And she actually goes and talks to the actress or talked with the actress who, who did that. The actress was like, "I, you know, I kind of see the woman is responsible. And you could see Molly Ringwald kind of recoiled against that. Yeah. Um, and she talked about the underwear scene in The Breakfast Club or Long Duck Dong, all of these things. And then she talks about how she was coming out of a party and there was a, a, a gay man who... Told her he loved her movies, and she actually reached out to him later and was like, "Why?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Because we could see ourselves as the outsider." And now she she doesn't like leave it on that note, like ah, oh, that's the magic. But she says it's kind of one of those things where you have to live with both and just go. I don't I don't know John like what John Hughes was trying to do. Was he a product of his times? Who knows? But You just kind of have to sit uncomfortably with the duality of it. And that's so true of almost everything we cover from this period of time. You know, be it about race, gender, um, sexual identity, um, wealth disparity, everything. Those are all things that probably weren't considered, well, definitely weren't considered in the same way with the same language that we now possess.
0: Yeah, I also think there's this problem where When people watch 80s movies and they go, oh, we would never say that today. Of course not. Of course not. That's why you're watching how the The 80s are represented in a very honest way. That's why a lot of it's cringy. But it's also that was the 80s. I was living through the 80s. Take it or leave it. So I think that... Something about John Hughes films is that the way the teenagers talk and the way they act is very much immature and hormonal and all this stuff that, mm-hmm. that is a true depiction. And maybe it's cringy to you now because you're so lofty and able to to look back and go, I would never say something like that to somebody. But that's not true. And that's maybe, just how maybe your it parents is. did. Yeah. And maybe your parents, they most definitely did. It was the yeah. 80s. So I do think that there is a, a give and take with watching these older films, which is, See it as a time capsule. Take Mm -hmm. it or leave it. But don't try and kind of rewrite it in the way that fits to today's narrative. Because it wasn't written for today. It was written for 1980.
1: No, but that it is important to discuss because there are movies where you have to just go, oh, it's too much. Yes, We got to throw it in the trash and burn it. But I think there are enough gems and enough relatable content in this, in, in Hughes's oeuvre, that we can still pull out a great deal and still enjoy.
0: Yeah, I agree. Overall, I I do enjoy many of the films of John Hughes. Not all of them. I'm not, you know, a mega fan or anything like that. But I do love Weird Science, even though it's problematic. But <laughs> I really, really enjoy Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I do think that there are films like Pretty in Pink that he wrote that was another huge hit. Mm-hmm and 16 candles that do have these really sweet elements they're very real and times they get a little heavy at times mm-hmm. granted it's always from only one perspective yep. but they're fun and then to get to the things like uncle buck and all those those are they're just fun films mm-hmm. and they do have a sense of comfort to them home alone being one of the big ones is there is comfort to it yeah. and and so as a on a whole I think he was a very important filmmaker.
1: Yeah. An extremely
0: agree. important writer and very influential. I think we lost him a little too soon, but at the same time, I think he he was kind of done with us at the same time I think his family
1: lost him too soon.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I would agree. Uh, so it's interesting, it's complicated. He's still mysterious because there was never really a lot to go off of in the first place. I and I kind of like it that mysterious. way. I prefer my celebrities to be somewhat mysterious. Yeah. I I don't need to know everything about them.
1: Yeah, we're looking at you, Viggo Mortensen.
0: <laughs> what? Uh,
1: I don't know. He's <laughs> mysterious to me.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, on that note, of all the celebrities you could have gone with... <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this. a little different, more conversational, but I also think it's interesting to just work through you know, somebody's career. Yeah. Well, if you like what you heard, thanks. We appreciate that.
1: Thank you. If
0: you didn't, don't tell us. But <laughs> Get a you life. should go rate, review, give us five stars, tell your friends, tell your family, subscribe them to our podcast, spread the word. We, we really do appreciate it. You can find all of our back episodes at lasergraves.com. We're also anywhere and everywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, If you like what you hear and you want more, we do Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash lasergraves, where we do several bonus episodes. Many of the catch-up ones are coming your way right now. We've been a little behind because we've had a crazy couple months, but we're getting there. So thank you to all of our patrons, and thank you ahead of time if you're so thrilled by this episode that you're signing up right now
1: wow thanks how thanks. nice of you i hear your your keyboard clicking
0: that's right if you want to follow us on instagram i we are at laser graves and that's about it for this week you should probably go follow our friends we post their shows on our instagram site and i don't know what we're doing uh next time but I don't know. it won't be oingo boingo because i need a break from this kind of world for a second that'll come eventually
1: yeah but, probably not uncle buck even though i kind of wish we were doing Uncle. Buck. Yeah.
0: or what's the other one king ralph <laughs> <I> <laughs>
1: you're think that's always 90s. talking about that
0: but i wouldn't be surprised if john hughes actually wrote that but he didn't
1: <sighs> i love king ralph
0: okay well that's enough of that
1: okay all right bye everybody <laughs> bye.
0: see you next time